Gospels to 2 Timothy, please. This summer, Sue and I have been working on our backyard. Uh, you know, we're in a... We could be on one of those house remodel TV shows, but it would have to be a mini-series because we've been working on our house for nine years, you know. But uh, we've been planting trees and flowers and shrubs and grass in the backyard in stages as we've gotten plans made and, you know, have money and time and so on. It's not hard to go to Home Depot or Lowe's or to a nursery and find some pretty plants and trees and buy them and take them home and set them around to go, my, won't that be lovely? But then comes the, the planting and, if you will, the farming. Uh, you know, there is a part of a tree that's above the ground or a part of a plant that's above the ground and part of it that's below the ground. And the above-the-ground part doesn't work right if the below-the-ground part isn't right. And we have hard clay soil in most of our backyard, so we have to dig extra and put good soil in there. And, and uh, Lord knows what it'll be like next year after it has a chance to sit there for a while. The Christian life has a visible part on top and a root structure down below, if you will. There's a p- there is the part of the Christian life that supports the part that is visible. And in 2 Timothy chapter 2, I believe in the first seven verses, Paul tells Timothy what his life should look like, that visible part on top. Now, he's not telling him about his whole life, but he's talking to him about being strong. The Apostle Paul is leaving. He is dying out. He is going to be executed for his faith. And Timothy is going to somewhat take his place, not as an apostle, but as a man who is a a leader of a church and possibly multiple churches. And Paul is saying, look, you need to be strong, and here's what that strength looks like. Verse 1 of chapter 2, You therefore, my son, be strong, in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You, therefore, must endure hardship as a good teacher of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. And if anyone competes in athletics, he's not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer must be first to partake of the crops. Consider what I say, and may the Lord give you understanding in all things. The Apostle Paul uses a whole series of of pictures, if you will, to say, Timothy, here's what your life should look like. And then, in verses 8 through 13, he gives them that, that root structure, if you will, the part that should support what's up above, so that it can be there, it can exist. And so he says, remember that Jesus Christ, of the seed of David, was raised from the dead according to my gospel. for which I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of change, but the word of God is not chained. What we looked at a couple of weeks ago, as we looked at verses uh, 8 and 9, is we understood this. If you're going to be strong, you've got to live in an awareness of some things. The word remember there is a command to Timothy. Timothy already knew these things. Paul didn't give him a whole set of new information, but he said, Timothy, this has to be part of your active thinking. Sometimes as Christians, we forget 
to meditate on the things that God has done and the things God is doing. And because of that, we get weak. And he said, Timothy, you need to meditate on the fact that Christ had a human nature. He went through many hard and difficult things. He understands what you're going through. He says you, needed to, you need to live in an awareness of the divine nature of Christ. Christ wasn't just a man. He wasn't just a good teacher. He was the Son of God. Number three, you need to live in an awareness of the saving work of Christ. If we're going to be strong, we have to be aware that Christ not only died on the cross to take away our sin, but of what results from that death. What results from that death and our faith in him is our future in heaven, our life that is transformed day by day. We need to live in awareness of the saving work of Christ. We, live in, in, we need to live in the awareness of the divisive impact of Christ. Paul said, Timothy, you need to remember something, and that is some people don't like Jesus. You just need to remember that. It's got to be a constant part of your mind. Otherwise, as you go out to live your life, you will face opposition, and you will think, what's wrong with me? Or what's wrong with them? Or what's wrong with God? Or what's wrong with Christianity? You can count on it, folks. Every... Every so often, somebody will put out a book and say what's wrong with Christianity. And if you're not prepared for the fact that people are going to do that, when it comes out, it's going to hit you if your roots aren't strong. So he says, look, just be aware. Jesus himself said, they hated me, they're going to hate you. Number five, we've got to live in an awareness of the unstoppable power of Christ. That is the... The great, the great little summary truth here, verses 8 and 9. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel, for which I suffered trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains, but the word of God is not chained. The power of Christ is unstoppable. No circumstance in your life, no person in your life, no person in political authority, whether of this country or another, can stop the work of God. And I want to finish these thoughts about the awarenesses we need to live in, in verses 10 through 13, and remind you that what we're trying to understand is, what is the root that needs to be there if the fruit of Christ is going to be true in our life? In particular, the fruit of strength. Possessing the strength of Christ comes by living in an awareness of the value of ministry. Follow as I read verses 10 through 13. Therefore, therefore I endure all things for the sake of the elect that they may also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This is a faithful saying. If For if we died with him, we will live with him. If we endure, we will reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. In verse 10, we see this truth. We need to live in an awareness of the value of ministry. The Apostle Paul did not endure difficulties simply to be a good soldier of Christ. 
Now, I know that may sound a little bit like heresy. He endured all the way to martyrdom. And before that, he was beaten, he was shipwrecked, he was all kinds of things. He endured all of that, not just to obey Christ, but he did it because the work that he was involved with brought people to faith in Christ. The Apostle Paul never gave up living for the Lord or serving the Lord because he realized that his life and ministry were God's tools to bring people to Christ. Look at verse 10. He says, I endure all things for the sake of the elect. Now I realize that the the word elect or election, the whole area of Calvinism is a real hot button in Christianity today because some people have, have misbalanced the truth. But the simple truth is this from passages like Ephesians 2. Before we came to faith in Christ, we were so steeped in sin that we wouldn't come to Christ if God didn't reach down and draw us in. And that's what he calls the doctrine of election. God does something to make sure that we overcome our sin. Because without his initiation, it wouldn't happen. One of the prime examples of this is Judas. Nobody who has ever lived or ever will live, has had more of an opportunity to believe in Christ and thrown it away than Judas Iscariot. He was right there with all the other apostles. And we even see him and Peter both denying the Lord, but one of them going on to hell and one going on to heaven. And so we understand that God has to intervene in a life. It's not enough for people to be around the gospel. God has to intervene and break through the callous heart, open the eyes, draw people in, whatever he does. I don't know what he does, but he's got to do it. And so what the Apostle Paul said, here's the cool part of election. Paul said, there are people who are going to get saved. Without doubt, there are people who are going to get saved. Now, sometimes in our modern world, we look around and go, nobody here wants to know the Lord. Not the people at my work. The Apostle Paul said, there are people out there who God is working in their lives. And I know there are some people who are going to get saved. Um, But just as certain as God has decided that people will get saved, he has also decided on the method. See, here's, the I think, the place where, where some folks get the balance wrong today. They understand that God is in the business of saving people, and so they think our job is then to somehow sit on our hands and sort of speak the gospel but never tell people, you need to believe, and never to go out and witness and and share God's truth and drag people into church and all those kinds of things. The Apostle Paul said, in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, but it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. So the Apostle Paul is sitting in jail saying, Timothy, do you know why I've gone through if you want to read 2 Corinthians chapter, what is it, 11 and 12, I think you'll agree that he went through hell on earth. Why did I go through that? 
He said, I went through it because there are some people out there that God's going to save. And I know that if I keep preaching the truth and keep living for Christ, some of them are going to get saved. And so I am going to be God's servant to do that. And so that gave him strength. When he went through difficulty, it wasn't purposeless. It was purposeful because he was going through it so that God could use him to save people. What does God ask of us in carrying out his ministry? He, asks, he says this, bringing people to Christ requires righteousness. The Apostle Paul many times talked about false teachers who were out there just trying to enrich themselves or get status for themselves. And the Apostle Paul never did that. He was absolutely righteous as righteous as a human being can be, realizing that we all sin and we have to confess day by day. But he lived a righteous life so that when he stood up and preached about Christ dying for your sins and about what great things God can do, people would see it in him and it would match his words. We, If we are going to be involved in God's work, it's going to require our righteousness. Listen to these verses that talk about uh, the office, the official office of a servant or a deacon in the church. Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. But let those also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Likewise, their wives, or the female deacons, better translation, must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husband of one wife. In other words, let them be uh, you know, faithful to their wife, ruling their children and their house as well. We look at that little summary list of the Christian life, and if we were to take time and look through the Scripture, we'd understand that God expects all those things of all Christians. Now, why does he say that those who serve in a leadership or in a special serving role in the church, have to be righteous. Well, we'd go, well, duh, Dave. Of course they have to be righteous. Otherwise, people will look at their life and say, your life doesn't match what you're saying. The same is true when we go out there to try to reach people for Christ. A number of years ago, I did a a funeral for uh, a woman had died, and... uh, I'm not quite sure why they asked me. It was an old acquaintance of mine, and I don't know what their present church situation was, but her family asked me to do the funeral. And her husband, who I'd never met in the years that I knew them, he came in to talk about the funeral arrangements and so on. And and I was privileged to hear one of the angriest rants against Christians I'd ever heard. Turns out this woman had had an affair with an elder from another church. And this husband knew about it. You know, at some point, you know, it became public. And, uh, you know, there was some resolution because they stayed married for many years after that. But there was no resolution in his heart. And you know what he essentially said to me? If that's the way Christians live, I don't want no part of that. If a man who is an elder in another church has an affair with my wife, what kind of Christian is that? Now, just so you know, I didn't let him off the hook. I mean, if a guy's going to go that far, I'm going to say, 
So you think when you stand before God in heaven, he's going to give you a pass because your wife lived in sin? Well, well, no. Okay. Some of you might be here saying, I'm not going to believe in Christ because of this Christian or that Christian or that Christian or that Christian. Okay, that, that's baloney. But Christian, you need to hear that. You need to hear that you are God's witness to the world. The Apostle Paul said, I endure all things for the sake of those who are coming to me. One of the things that's a little hard for, for some people sometimes to get their mind around is the idea that some aspects of the church ministry need to be focused on those who don't believe yet. It's real easy for us to get in focused and say, well, it's all about me. I don't care if that unbeliever doesn't like what we're doing. But somehow we have to say, God help me to care about unbelievers so much that number one, I will live righteously. I will live in righteousness. Bringing people to Christ also requires generosity. And this is just one example of scripture, but the Apostle Paul said, Moreover, brethren, he's writing to the Corinthians about other people, we make, to, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality or generosity. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of ministering to the saints. Serving the Lord is going to require you to make sacrifices, period. Sacrifices of money, sacrifices of time, sacrifices of priority. There's just no other way around it. Um, right now, in uh, Togo, most of you are aware that uh, there is a hospital being built. Um, if you don't know, the hospital is being built in a place where not only do people not believe in Christ, but the majority religion of the people is really anti-Christian. And yet those people are welcoming this hospital because they don't have one. They don't even have a doctor in this whole area of, of thousands of people. And so $5 million is being raised in money and in goods to build this hospital. But $5 million won't do it. It's going to take hundreds or maybe thousands of volunteer hours from people paying their own way to fly to that country and work in the 100-plus degree sun to build it. Why are people willing to sacrifice so much? Here's why. Because in that country, there's already a hospital about a day's drive away. And the people in that country have said this, more people have come to Christ through the ministry of that hospital than any other evangelism method we have here. And in a place where people hate Christ, they will listen to the gospel to get the doctor to see them. And more so than that, they will see the love of Christ demonstrated. Up there in that country, our missionary, Tim Newfelt, has made a friend of a person who is a religious leader of this other religion that I'm not going to name because this goes out on the internet. 
but it's that other majority religion in the world that's really strong. And this fella has said to Tim, you are acting in love. Nobody else would do this for me. What does Tim do? Tim goes to him and takes his blood pressure because the guy has a blood pressure problem and he takes a medication because he can't afford it or he can't get it and Tim is loving this fellow to Christ. If that fellow becomes a Christian, he will influence hundreds of other people. But Tim Neufeld has to live in the 100 plus degree weather to do it. And we need to ask ourselves a real simple question. Am I willing to suffer in order for some other people to come to Christ? Or when it comes up to that point of sacrifice, do we go, you know, that's just too much, Pastor Dave. I'm not going to give that big amount of money. I'm not going to give that much time. I'm not going to give that much pain and effort. I can't tell you how much sacrifice God wants from you. I can't. It's not my job. But if God puts in your heart to make a sacrifice, the power to do it will come from this thought. God is going to reach some of his other sheep that he hasn't reached yet, and it's going to come through sacrifices like mine. And the Apostle Paul took heart in that, and it encouraged it, 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 it caused the flowers of the Christian life to grow on him because his roots were sunk down into this, into this simple truth that God is going to reach people through me, but it's going to be costly. The third thing that we have to understand in the value of ministry is this. Bringing people to Christ requires persecution. Um, turn to 2 Timothy. Well, you, if you look at Bibles like mine, you don't even have to turn. Page 3, uh, chapter 3. 2 Timothy 3.12 All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus someday might get a little bit of lip from an unbeliever. Is that what it says? All who desire, read it with me, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. I changed my thinking about this this week as I thought about it. Honestly, I'm going to go way out on a limb and say, if we're not getting persecuted at least a little, you've got to wonder about how much godliness is going on. And the truth is, if you try to do God's ministry, somebody's going to push back. It might be the evil one himself pushing back through the world around us, uh, it might just be the people who follow his way of thinking. But somebody's going to push back. This week, a friend of mine talked to me about the most amazing conversation. They went to work, and somebody at work who's also a Christian put forth a question for discussion. You know, like sometimes you want to stimulate a little talk about something. You know, what's what's the greatest vacation you ever took? Or, or you know, what country do you want to go to someday? And... Uh, The question was, what's your favorite way to do a certain sinful activity? Okay, What's your favorite way to do this certain sinful activity? And this is a Christian. And my friend says, I don't do that, and I'm not going to have that discussion. And you know what the response was? Oh, you Pollyanna. (laughs) Nobody ever says that to a preacher. 
You know, I've gone into fire halls and had them say, clean it up, the Rev's here. But they won't try to convince me that I should do certain things. They just don't. So I, I don't get the opportunity that you do to get persecuted sometimes. I get some other special ones once in a while. If you live so godly that people can see Christ in you, you will suffer persecution. The question we have to ask is, are we willing to do that? Are we willing to suffer persecution if that's what it takes to bring somebody to Christ? And it appears that sometimes, many times, it does require that. Um, Here's what you need to remember about doing God's work. Lives are at stake. This is not a social club. This is a life-saving station. This last week, the last time I was on this platform, I think this week, was at Helen Durkin's memorial service. And I'm telling you, if you're not in the habit of going to funerals for people you don't know you should be, because Pastor Ralph preached the most masterful funeral sermon, maybe the most masterful one I've ever heard, honestly. He took Helen's, he took Helen's uh, journal Somebody gave her a journal when her husband died in 1983. This shows you what a godly woman she was. So, and so she started writing things in there, Bible verses, little poems, little sayings, um, thoughts that she had and kept it for a couple of years. And he took her journal and he took a passage of Scripture out of it and then sort of exegeted the points by, by other things she said. And it was just a marvelous sermon that Helen preached. That's the business we're in. The mood in the room was joyful. That's the business we're in. Now, nobody's glad to lose Helen, even though she hadn't lived a hundred years. Everybody would say, oh, it's, you know, good time for her to go and all that. But I'm telling you, the mood was joyful. I remember at Rod Brudwick's funeral, I was sitting up here, and I was looking at the front row that was all full of family, including the ones that we know, and they're just sitting there listening to people talk and smiling, not because they're, they're glad that their loved one is gone, but because there's joy in the Lord when somebody enters the presence of the Lord. That's the business we're in. And it's an expensive business. The government doesn't support us either financially or otherwise. And neither does the rest of the world. Do you know, what do you call a man or woman who risks their life to save someone else? What do you call them? A hero. You see, we've got our thinking so upside down because of our American culture. We're all about comfort and and, and pleasure and, and what we think is blessing, that we're missing out on the greatest blessing of all, which would be somebody like Helen Durkin pointing to us and saying, you're the one that led me to Christ. You're the one that influenced me to Christ. Wow. That's what encouraged Paul while he was sitting in a jail cell. He said, Timothy, I endure this stinking cell for the sake of the elect. Do you know that from what we can read in Scripture, the Apostle Paul led some of his jail guards to faith in Christ? That's a miracle. These old tough Roman soldiers. 
not only them, but some other people in Caesar's household. There were other people who got saved. But it won't happen if you're focused inward on yourself. You have to be focused outward on the people that God is going to reach through you. If we're going to be strong, we have to live in an awareness of the value of ministry. Number, number seven, the last one in this list from these two sermons is this. If we're going to be strong in Christ, we have to live in an awareness of the value of faithfulness. Look at verse 11, please. This is a faithful saying. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. The value of faithfulness is, first of all, this. Faithful endurance is an indicator of salvation. Now, be real careful while I'm teaching this today and while you're reading the Scripture, and do not construe anything I say to mean this. You are going to earn your salvation by being faithful or carrying on through difficulty. That is not what the Scripture says. The Scripture says that if we have received Christ as our Savior, if we are truly born-again people, there will be faithfulness. And so faithfulness is an indicator of salvation. I only knew Helen Durkin for nine years, but in those nine years, she was faithful to the Lord, even though she had to give up driving at 90-something. <laughs> She was still driving when I knew her ten years, nine years ago. And she had to give up her house and eventually had to move to an assisted living. And, you know, her life just shrank right down. She just kept right on living for the Lord. We have a shut-in over at Louisa House, uh, Lucille Shelton, just the same way. Just rock solid with the Lord no matter what comes. Faithful endurance is an indicator of salvation. Your willingness... To die to self and live in the service of Christ is an evidence of your true salvation. It's not the path to salvation. It's an evidence. One of the things that you can't see in your English translation, in the Greek, this, this first phrase, if we died with him, is written in an aorist tense, which in the Greek verb tenses means something that is a completed action. It says, if we died with him, and it should be written this way, since we died with him, we will live with him. If you're not willing to lay down your life for Christ, you are either not saved or you're a believer who's living in sin. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to be my disciple to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. You either are going to abandon your life and believe in Christ and follow his plan, or you are going to control your life and not believe in him, maybe have some intellectual awareness of him, but basically live your own path. Jesus stated it negatively here. Not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, I think of our country, you know, it's not so much anymore, but years ago people used to say this is a Christian country. 
And there probably were a lot of people who got to heaven and said, Lord, Lord. And he said, who are you? Because they assumed that coming out of a Christian country was what salvation was about. Not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father. Many will say to me in that day of judgment, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. When you believe in Christ as your Savior, God puts a new nature into you. And that new nature starts to create the life of Christ. And that will continue on until you sin. And when you confess, it, it's, it, it continues on more. And, and it just goes and goes and goes. You don't lose your salvation. There are some people who have made a profession of faith and will fall away from that. And it looks like they've lost their salvation. But on the positive side, he says, whoever confesses me before men, I will confess him before my fathers in heaven. In other words, part of being a Christian is a willingness to stand up and say, I'm a Christian. I don't think Iola would mind that she told me this week about somebody she knew years ago who she had worked to get to come to faith in Christ and she thought, this person had, but she was with her at a, at a crunch moment when somebody made fun a little bit of Christianity and the woman just poo-pooed it away. She didn't stand up and say, yes, I believe. Folks, if you won't stand up and claim Christ now, he says later on, when you're standing up there in heaven, he says he's not going to stand up for you. Now, am I trying to scare you into heaven? Yes. This is serious business. And, and, and so what, what Paul is saying, I believe, to Timothy, if we die with him, we will live with him. If we endure, we will reign. He, he's saying, look, Timothy, if there's a faithful life, it's an evidence of Christianity, and there's going to be blessing at the end of it. Faithfulness is an indication of our salvation. Look at uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, the second half of it. If we deny him, he will deny us. Now I realize the next verse uh, seems to say the opposite, and I'm going to talk to you about that in just a minute. There's two different words here, though. And he says, if you are a person who denies Christ, who is unwilling to stand up in the moment of heat and say, I am a Christian, then it probably indicates you are not a Christian yet. John pulls both the positive and the negative together here. And he says, whoever transgresses or whoever sins and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. In other words, your life is an indicator of your faith. If you claim Christ, your life should have a righteous lifestyle. It doesn't mean absolute perfection. I understand that. But there should be a righteous lifestyle going on. He who abides, uh, on the contrast, he who abides in the doctrine of Christ does have the Father and the Son. Um, and that's why 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, Examine yourself. It's not my job to examine you. 
I'll help you examine yourself if you, if you can't figure it out. You come in, we'll open the scripture and we'll figure it out. But it's important for you to examine yourself. It's important for you to look down inside and say, am I a believer in Christ? Am I willing? And the way I, one of the ways I can know if I'm a true believer, am I willing to stand up and stand up for Christ? The second thing we need to understand about faithfulness is this. Faithful endurance will result in honor. This is the blessing tucked in here. If we died with him, we will live with him. If we endure, we will reign with him. This is one of those truths that we don't talk about a lot. We, we certainly could. There's no reason we don't. But here's a scripture that says very clearly, your godly Christian life, which includes endurance, will be rewarded by Christ with a position of honor and reigning with him. Look at these other scriptures. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And the word saint just means a, a Christian believer. Do you not know that we shall judge angels? Do you ever think about that? Probably not something you knew, that we're going to be sitting there with Christ. The scripture essentially says that we are... We are, there's, there is a certain amount of brotherhood and co-inheritance with Christ. Not because we've earned it or deserve it, because God has decided to give it to us as a blessing for the suffering that we go through. And he said, Jesus said uh, in a parable, he said, Well done, good servant, because you were faithful and very little, have authority over ten cities. In that blessing of the parables, where we get those words, Well done, good and faithful servant, and we like to use those about people coming to heaven, and God says to them, Well done, good and faithful servant. The context is one of, of God rewarding his faithful servants with a blessing. Faithfulness is not just its own reward in this life, but there is a reward to come. According to verse 11 and verse 12, and according to verse 10, faithfulness requires giving up your life, but what we see in these later verses is there is a gaining of honor and responsibility with Christ in his millennial reign on earth and perhaps even on the new earth that he will create someday. The Apostle Paul said, Timothy, remember that. Down here on this earth, people think you're nothing, but someday you're going to be ruling with Christ. If somebody said to you, next week, if you can live through this week, next week I'm going to give you $1,000. You'd be all excited for next week. Oh boy, oh boy. And stuff would happen to you, and you go, ah, it doesn't matter, doesn't matter, doesn't matter. Oh, boy. Boom, there's your $1,000. That's what God says. He says, look, I know it's tough now, but you be faithful. Be faithful, be faithful, because there is some great stuff coming. And that's what Paul told Timothy. He said, look, here's how you be strong, Timothy. Keep your eye on the prize. There's a third thing that we need to understand about the value of faithfulness, and it's this. Faithful endurance places us under God's compassion. Will you look at verse 12, the second half of verse 12 and verse 13. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. 
the, the idea of denial and the word that's used for denial is different than the word for faithless. And I believe that verse 12 is speaking of a settled kind of denial. That is the person who essentially lives in a denial of Christ. Their lifestyle is not a particularly righteous lifestyle. Oh, it may look okay on the outside, but they're really not living for the Lord. And essentially, they are denying the Lord. Contrast that with a temporary disowning or a temporary failing of Christ like Peter did. Peter was faithless in that moment. Why was Peter restored and Judas was not? Because Peter repented and Judas did not. Now, Peter did not earn his forgiveness by his repentance. Rather, his true faith in Christ resulted in his repentance. Do you remember earlier on there was a hard time in the teaching of Christ? He gave some teaching and a lot of, it says, from, from that time forward, many of his disciples did not walk with him. And he turns to the, to the twelve and he says, are you guys going to leave me also? And Peter says, where else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And then later there was the time when, when Christ looked right at the twelve and said, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter knew who Christ was and he had a real faith in him, but there came to a weak moment and he absolutely failed. But because he was a true believer, he had the compassion of God, not the judgment of God. And so when Christ is raised from the dead, he says, Peter, we've got to talk about some stuff. And there was restoration. And, and, a, and a couple of months later, Peter stands up. Peter stands up in front of all these people gathered in Jerusalem and lets them have it. I mean, he says, you people killed the Lord of glory. And they were cut to the heart. Peter was a true believer. And when he came to that moment of faithlessness, Yes, he failed. Yes, he had to repent. But God drew, drew him back to himself. Did you see Christ going out to him there on that beach and say, come on, Peter, come on back? Because there was true faith to begin with. Faithful endurance, which is an indicator of our salvation, places us under God's compassion. The promise here is that if you are a true child of God, he will not disown you when you sin. One commentator put it this way. Even when we disappoint the Lord, he remains true to his word and his character, and he is faithful in his dealings with us. Note, for instance, his dealings with John Mark, who disappointed the Lord at Perga. Paul felt Mark's defection keenly, but the Lord did not write Mark off. He used Barnabas, Peter, and others to bring Mark back to useful ministry. My little children, let us not love in word or tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we will know that we are of the truth. By what? By us walking in deed and in truth. By, by living righteously in our behavior and in the words that we say. And the result of that is we assure our hearts before him. But if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. There's going to be times when we feel like Peter and we hang our head and weep bitterly. But God is going to restore. 
That's a small disaster. You know that some of the biggest evergreen trees have roots close to the surface. And when a big wind comes, over they go. They're called dangerous trees. Those are the trees you can cut down, even in places where you're not supposed to cut trees down. The Christian life has a big tree that shows, but it has to have roots in the things we've been talking about this morning. If the roots aren't there, the tree is in danger of falling over when the wind comes. And the wind will come. The difficulty will come. The challenge will come. May God help us sink our roots down in these truths and be truly strong in Christ. Heavenly Father, help us. Make us strong. Help us to grasp your truth. And then help us to live in it. Thank you for your faithfulness to us, even when we are, we are marginal sometimes. Help us to aspire to a consistently faithful life, whether it means difficulty, sacrifice, persecution, realizing that we honor you and you use us to reach others for Christ. I pray in his name, amen.